Okay, so we're at chapter three, uh, part three of <clears throat> on the mode of distance of technical objects. So it's technical and philosophical thought uh, is the title of the chapter. Um, so we have seen the uh, other portions of his uh, philosophical anthropology, um, his genetic accounts of the different modes of existence. We've seen uh, the magical mode of existence, which splits into uh, techniques and religion. Um, and uh, then each of those splits in turn, uh, and there's a sort of complicated process of uh, splitting and reunification. Um, and then philosophy is supposed to be the sort of um, final reunification of all these splits. So it, uh, it reunifies everything that's split out of the magical unity. Um, so then this chapter is going to be a sort of metaphilosophical chapter. He's going to be explaining what it is exactly that we're doing when we do philosophy. Um, and how that relates to the technical mode of existence. Okay, so I will start reading. The opposition that exists between techniques and religions in an initial stage is inherent to the techniques of the natural world's elaboration in the contrast they form with those religions that think the destiny of individual man. But there is a second stage of techniques and of religion. After the elaboration of the natural world, technical thought turned itself toward the elaboration of the human world which it analyzes and breaks down into elementary processes and then reconstructs according to operational schemas, preserving the figural structures and setting aside the qualities and ground forces. To these techniques of the human world correspond the types of thought that also concern themselves with the human world, but taken in its totality. They aren't commonly called religions because tradition reserves the name of religion for modes of thought that are contemporary with the techniques of the, of the elaboration of the world. And yet these modes of thought that assume the function of totality in opposition with the techniques applied to the human world and which are the great political movements possessing a global reach are indeed the functional analogs of religions. But man's techniques and social and political thought result from a new wave of splits, dédoublement, within magical thought. The old techniques and religions were able to develop by taking advantage of the dissociation of the primitive magical universe considered almost exclusively as the natural world the human world remained enveloped by the primitive magical reticulation. Conversely, from the moment at which the man's techniques broke away from this reticulation and, be and began considering man as technical matter, what emerged correlatively from this new break in the figure ground relationship was a thinking that grasps human beings from below the level of unity, the techniques of human management, maniement, and another thinking grasping them from above the level of unity, social and political thoughts. As with the old techniques and old religions that arose from out of the breaking of the natural world's magical reticulation, human techniques and political thoughts proceed in opposite directions from one another. Techniques apply themselves to man by means of figural characteristics, pluralizing and studying him as a citizen, as a worker, and as a member of a familial community. It is indeed the figural elements that are retained by techniques, and in particular criteria such as the integration into social groups, the cohesion of groups. They transform attitudes into structural elements like sociometrics does when it transforms choices into the lines of a sociogram. Rather than analyzing man, uh, social and political thought classifies and judges him by putting him into categories defined by qualities and ground forces, just as religions classify and judge by placing each individual into the category of the sacred or the profane, or the pure or impure. And just as religions rebel against techniques profanation of the sacred aspect of certain places and moments, imposing respect for those places and, and moments on techniques by way of prohibitions, for instance, the observance of public holidays. In the same way, social and political thoughts, even when they oppose each other, 
limit the techniques of man and oblige techniques to respect his reality as if the, the techniques of man were impious and disrespectful to the totality. The human world is thus represented in its elements by the techniques of man and in its totality by the social and political concerns. But these two representations are not enough because the human world can be grasped in its unity only at the neutral point. Technics pluralize it and political thought integrates it into a higher unity, that of the totality of humanity in its coming into being, which it loses, uh, where it loses its real being in the same way that the individual loses its unity within a group. Okay, that was long. Um, so there's a fair amount of, uh, of material in that long paragraph. Um, but, um, so we have here um, a, a second um, form of split into the, uh, or a second stage of the split between technics and religion. Um, so everything we've seen so far, that whole process of splitting um, was one first stage um, with, that has to do with the relation with the natural world. Um, and then now we're seeing a, a second stage where it's the relationship uh, of human beings to the social world um, or of human human existence uh, itself, the human world. Um, and so there's a, a, a corresponding split within the uh, the human worlds uh, between something like techniques and religion, um, just as there is in the uh, in the relation to the natural world. Um, so with techniques corresponds to um, the techniques of the human world is um, uh, what he describes as management of, of human beings. Um, and then uh, the religious side or, or what corresponds to religion is um, political and social movements um, that grasp the totality of, of a human of the human world and um, uh, orient human beings towards that totality. Um, so that's the the sort of big picture of what this next chapter uh, is dealing with that human world. Yeah, um, what what was that stuff about sociometrics? Um, because I'm, are, is this kind of like demographic analysis or something? Like, what is he? What is, what does sociometrics mean? It's basically social network analysis. So it's like um, who interacts with whom in a given group. Uh, and you sort of derive things like charisma or or influence from by sort of modeling them almost like particles. Basically, it's it's like a, a form of analytic social science. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, and I guess the sociogram would just be like a, a graph of all the connections between different people within an organization or institution or whatever it is. Yeah, and I think this uh, this approach, the sociometrics, is taken as a sort of example of, um, um, so it, it's like uh, an instance of a, a broader approach to uh, analysis of social um, order. Uh, so breaking social organization down into um, individual interactions and uh, um, sort of, um, yeah, just analysis in general, like taking taking it a social organization and breaking it down into its constituent parts. Um, so that's the approach of the the technical um, side of this split. Uh, whereas the the quasi religious side um, uh, starts from the whole. It it works uh, at the level of the whole of the social order. Um, so this is you know big political um, um, movements or or social movements that uh, that have like a 
um, uh, a vision for society as a whole uh, and try to implement that vision. There is something that throws me off uh, in this new beginning. Uh, it looks like a new beginning for me uh, to some extent. Uh, uh, I find it helpful to find certain uh, rough historical correlates. And, then, and this, well, this applies to the last chapter with magical thought splitting into uh, techniques and religion. So I can uh, come up with anthropological equivalents, maybe in history of the human species and so on. And it makes me think of ancient times necessarily. But here I find these, uh, the references are uh, more inclined toward uh, some uh, some level of modernity, maybe, uh, with reference to these more modern techniques, sociometrics, uh, even bordering on some kind of uh, Foucault in uh, realm of governance, human techniques, uh, techniques of humans specifically. Uh, that That's what throws me off. And uh, I also wonder, and this is the first page of this chapter. Uh, there is a place where he says the, the human world remained enveloped by the primitive magical reticulation. Uh, whereas, uh, I guess, techniques and religions went on their separate ways, but human world remained enveloped. So it didn't become anything. So I, I wonder what happened to the human world. Uh, it stayed suspended in that limbo or something? Yeah, I think in terms of historical correlates of, of the, the stages that he's describing here, I would think of the 19th century as sort of the uh, inauguration of, of both sides of the split. So the first time in the, in the 19th century is the first time you have states um, really starting to apply, uh, states and um, um, companies as well starting to apply Things like uh, social analysis, um, you know, population demographics, and and um, um, you know, management statistics, and so on. Um, these types of things appear in the 19th century, um, and then also at the same time, you have uh, big political movements or social movements also appearing for the first time in the 19th century. Um, uh, you know, as such, um, uh, so things movements that are self-consciously social or political movements. Um, um, so yeah, I, I, I tend to think of this as corresponding to roughly the 19th century um, and with both of these sides appearing uh, together at the same time. Um, and so then the relation between the human and the, or the natural world and the human world. Um, so it, it, I think, uh, so in where the, like the second or third sentence, um, he says, uh, after the elaboration of the natural world, technical thought turned itself towards the elaboration of the human world. Um, so it looks like the um, the human world, or the, the application of technical thought or the technical mode of existence to the human world only appears after the uh, elaboration of the natural world um, has already occurred. So the whole uh, sequence that we saw in the last chapter um, that whole process of splitting and, and re, uh, recomposing the unity, uh, that whole thing happens first, and then only do we get to um, technical thought and religious, or the equivalent of religious thought in 
the social world or the human world. Um, so yeah, I think the human world um, remains uh, in a sort of implicit state or, or um, um, yeah, it's just something that's not um, uh, an object of action uh, in a conscious way. So human beings don't um, deliberately act in such a way as to change society or to work on society uh, until we find these splits uh, occurring into the the technical and the quasi-religious mode of existence in roughly the 19th century. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, that's helpful. But of course, um, like to say that the the human world remains implicit or um, or is not a um, a deliberate object of action uh, doesn't mean, of course, that human beings are not changing their social worlds through their their yeah. activities. Um, so. Um, Obviously, human societies change over time uh, through human action, but the the key difference here, I think, is that it's not um, uh, it's only when the split occurs that we start having action that is deliberately oriented towards changing human society or the human world uh, as a whole. Um, so it's it's only once that split occurs that we can start treating uh, the human world as an object uh, of our action. Okay, so uh, if someone else would like to read, we can move on to the next paragraph, I think. However, the true level of human reality's individuation should be grasped by a thought that would be the analog for the human world of what aesthetic thought is for the natural world. This thought is not yet constituted, and it seems that it is philosophical thought that must constitute it. Aesthetic activity can be considered an implicit philosophy, but although aesthetic thought can apply itself to the human world, it seems unlikely that it would suffice to establish a stable and complete relation between man's techniques and social and political thought. Indeed, this construction cannot be isolated because the human world is attached to the natural world. Man's techniques emerged as a separate techniques the moment when the techniques of the elaboration of the natural world modified the social and political regimes through their rapid development. It is thus not only between man's techniques and social and political thought that the relation must be established, but between all the elementary functions and all the functions of the whole, les fonctions d'ensemble, including the techniques of man and the techniques of the world, religious thought and social and political thought. Philosophical thought is appropriate for such an elaboration because it can know the coming into being of the different forms of thought and establish a relation between the successive stages of Genesis, in particular between the stage that carries out a complete, a complete <clears throat> the break within the magical natural universe and a stage that carries out the dissociation within the magical human universe and which is in the process of completing itself. Conversely, aesthetic thought is contemporary with each splitting into two, even if it were possible to create a new aesthetics between man's techniques and social and political thinking, a philosophical thinking and aesthetics of aesthetics would be required in order to attach these two successive aesthetics to each other. Philosophy would thus constitute the high neutral point of the coming into being of thought. I hate to say it, but this, is, this paragraph is slightly obscure for me especially the section on an aesthetics of aesthetics. Yeah, I think we can go through it um, 
sort of in order as, as the different concepts are introduced and hopefully we can make some sense of it. Um, so I think the first thing to notice is that he uses this term individuation here in the first line of the paragraph. Um, so um, it's uh, individuation is not a term that has really come up that much in this book, but of course it's the, the key word of the other, um, his other big book. Um, and here he's, he's specifying individuation as um, uh, sort of the the end point or the uh, the result of this process that we've been following through the, the last few uh, or through the last chapter and into this one. Um, so uh, the true level of human reality's individuation. Um, so and, and this is something that would be grasped by something um, that that is beyond the split or, or that reunites the split between the technical and the the religious side. Um, so it would only be uh, after the split that individuation is possible um, as a, re a result of that secondary unification. And uh, he also points out in the next sentence that this, this mode of, of thought that would perform this reunification is not yet constituted. So it's something that doesn't yet exist in you know, 1958 or, or whenever he's writing this. Um, um, so we're still at the level of the split between um, the technical and the, the religious side in the human world. Um, and uh, so philosophical thought is, um, has a, um, a project or a, a, a task of performing this unification and bringing about this new mode of thought. Right, okay, yeah, so when it says man's technics here, so it says man's techniques emerged as a separate technics, the moment when the techniques of elaboration of the natural world, etc. Um, so man's techniques there, I think, should rather be translated as the techniques of man. Um, so it's the, the techniques that operate on human beings. Um, so that first side of the split. Um, so it's not the techniques that that belong to human beings because all techniques belong to human beings, but it's the um, the techniques that operates on human beings. Uh, so social techniques or whatever you want to call it. You know, this was been kind of in the background of my thinking lately. Um, a kind of curious um, strain of thinking um, in in a lot of philosophical tradition and contemporarily as well there's this this departure between whether or not um, people want to distinguish between the natural sciences and the human sciences or if they see them contiguous in some way or how they argue for a difference or a similar similarity in, in this way yeah. i was wondering if this uh, if this what what is in this paragraph is a stance on this kind of differentiation about kind of like the, the investigation to the natural world versus the human world as being kind of categorically dissimilar or if it's not as strong as that or if it's even related to that or what y'all thought about that yeah that's a, an interesting question um I think it's one we probably will have to defer to some extent to the rest of the chapter and see how he develops his his thoughts here. Um, but um, 
how my sort of first impression is that he's giving a, a sort of double answer to that question um, or um, um, uh, maybe a more nuanced answer rather than a, a, a purely yes or no as to whether there's a, a difference in kind between uh, human sciences and natural sciences. Um, because he, so at a first level, he does, he, he's giving like a, a very strong split between the, the uh, modes of existence that have to do with the natural world and then uh, a whole new uh, genetic series of modes of existence that have to do with the human world. So we have um, a, uh, a sort of, at the first level, we have a, a um, very strong distinction between um, uh, the natural world and the human world and the, the various modes of existence that have to do with each. Um, but then at a second level, I would say that um, because the same sort of structure reappears in both spheres, um, so we have the same split into a, a, a figural reality and a ground reality, um, uh, or a, um, a parcelizing function, like a function that uh, particularizes, and then another function that has to do with the whole. Um, anyway, it's the same structure in, in both spheres. So um, it seems as though the, the human uh, sciences would have um, a similar relationship to um, to human techniques and and uh, these social movements as the uh, natural sciences do with the the techniques of of the natural worlds and uh, religion, as we saw earlier uh, in the previous chapter. So I think yeah, I think there's a sort of double answer, and the, there's like a first level of uh, a very strong distinction between the two spheres, and then a second level there is a, a correspondence of structure between the two spheres. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, <clears throat> that's a really interesting answer. That's, that actually is, I can, I, I can understand what you mean by that, because it does seem like both are, there's an implicit sense in which they're separate enough to draw the distinction, and then there is the kind of resolution of the distinction, and like what he says that this construction cannot be isolated because the human world is attached to the natural world. It's, it seems like he's trying to draw draw an argument towards their um, uh, a commensurate account of of them in so in in this regards. So yeah, I guess we'll see what happens. But have we figured out what's going on with the aesthetics of aesthetics? Right. No, we haven't gotten to that point yet. Um, I haven't. So we haven't really talked about okay. um, aesthetic. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, well, yeah, and also just to presage that slightly, and also the line aesthetic activity can be considered an implicit philosophy. Um, maybe that has something to do with uh, how aesthetics of aesthetics make sense. Yeah, I think it does. Um, so uh, aesthetics, so in the, the last chapter, when we had the whole genealogy um, in the sphere of uh, relations with the natural world, uh, aesthetic played, aesthetics played the role of, or um, the aesthetic mode of existence uh, played the role of reunification um, of the the technical and the religious spheres. Um, and so he's pointing here to um, the possibility of uh, a similar form of aesthetic thought in the, the sphere of the human world. Um, so something that would reunify um, the the techniques of the human being uh, and social and political movements um so something that would be the unification of those two sides um and um 
So insofar as aesthetics um, carries out that unification, it is playing the role that philosophical thought is um, is meant to to carry out, but not in a, in an explicit way. So it's, it's doing it implicitly because it doesn't. Um, uh, it's not. Uh, uh, how to put it? It's not. It's not setting out this role of unification as its goal explicitly. It's just carrying out the unification in doing uh, aesthetic production. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, that's that's the sense in which aesthetic activity is an implicit philosophy. Um, so it it carries out the unification, but without having that unification as its explicit goal. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. That's meta philosophically very interesting. Yeah, and then the the converse of saying that um, aesthetic thought is, uh, uh, sorry, aesthetic activity is an implicit philosophy. The converse of that would be to say that philosophy is an explicit aesthetics um, or an explicit explicit form of aesthetic activity. So philosophy does explicitly what uh, aesthetic activity does only implicitly. Um, so that that's a, a more um, metaphilosophical way of of putting the point. I, I think is. Um, um, expressing uh, that the role of philosophy in this sphere, in the human sphere, is to um, to make explicit what is only implicit in the aesthetic activity. It sounds uh, Brandomian. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, yeah, I've been reading Brandom, so that's uh, probably why I'm, I'm thinking along those lines. Well, still, okay, so there's still something that is escaping me about the logic of the end of the paragraph about the aesthetics of aesthetics. Maybe if we could work out exactly what that would be, I would be like totally satisfied that I understood what was going on here because that's still, still the only part that I still like. It, it, is it that, because I can understand that it can be the explicitness of aesthetics, but how can, or making the explicit, what is it, what is ex implicit in aesthetics explicit? or bringing from the inside to the outside to be idealistic about it, I guess. But like, how, how does it go from there to being this aesthetics of aesthetics? Is it the, but I think maybe the secret to that is in the, the difference between aesthetic judgment and aesthetic activity or something like that. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's, maybe there is no answer. I don't know, what do y'all think? Is there a way that we can make sense of aesthetics of aesthetics or what are y'all doing with that? Um, I think, um, so I, as, as I'm reading it, uh, so when, when he's talking about this aesthetics of aesthetics, um, so it has to do with uh, a unification of, of a second order. Um, so we had in the, in the last chapter, in, in that first series um, of, the, of the genetic process uh, in the relationship between human beings and the natural world, we had one aesthetics which unified uh, the magical, or sorry, the technical and the religious mm -hmm. modes of existence, um, and then he's pointing here to the the need for something like an aesthetics in the sphere of the human world, um, that so that would unify um, the uh, human technics and um, social and political movements, um, and then but then he's he's arguing that what we need is not each of these unifications, but a unification of those two unifications, so a second-order unification. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what an, an aesthetics of aesthetics would be, um, and that's what he's pointing to uh, as the role of philosophy. So it's, um, philosophy has to unify not, not just the, the modes of existence in uh, the natural sphere, 
or the modes of existence in the human sphere, but has to unify those two spheres uh, all together. So he, he points to um, uh, the four different uh, points that, or mo four different moments that have to be uh, unified. Um, where is that? Sorry, let me find it. Right, the techniques of man and the techniques of the world, or sorry, yeah, techniques of man. Yeah, that's the better translation. The techniques of man and the techniques of the world, religious thought and social and political thought. So all four of those moments have to be united in philosophy. And, and insofar as philosophy plays the role of the second order unification, it's uh, a sort of aesthetics of aesthetics. So it's a, a unification of those two aesthetics in each of those spheres. And it seems there is uh, a difference in terms of the phases of each. Uh, aesthetics on its own seems like it wouldn't be appropriate because it is contemporaneous with uh, the primary modes uh, and their splittings, whereas philosophy is in the position of uh, taking stock uh, and knowing, uh, as he says, I think. What he, so he says, because it can know the coming into being of the different forms of thought. It's, uh, it makes me think back to that all of Minerva thing uh, and the last session's uh, Hegel discussion. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, so it's uh, this rule. So he, he points out right at the beginning of this paragraph that this um, second order unification uh, is not, uh, doesn't exist yet, hasn't been constituted. Um, so it's only after this whole process has played out and all these splits have happened that philosophy can come onto the scene and recapitulate the, the genetic process. Um, so it does. Um, so last time, I think I, I argued that he was uh, that Simondon was um, was not taking a, a Hegelian type of position uh, in the sense that um, he doesn't think that philosophy only um, works retroactively. But I think here maybe I would have to um, qualify that that claim because of uh, this this paragraph seems to make a much more retroactive type of um, uh, role for philosophy. But I do think still that um, the, the genetic process um, as it is carried out in philosophical thinking uh, is he wants, he wants that process to be identically, um, the, so it's the same process as the, um, the actual genetic process itself. So it's not just a reflection in our thought of a process that exists outside of our thought. It's uh, yeah. philosophical thinking carries out that genesis uh, itself. I think that's the position he wants to maintain, but I think that's um, to some extent is in in tension with um, this paragraph and the role, the more uh, retroactive role of philosophy um, as coming after all the splits have occurred uh, in this paragraph. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next um, couple paragraphs. There's one short one and then one uh, longer one we can read together. If someone else would like to read. The philosophical effort thus finds itself faced with a unique task to be accomplished, the search for unity among the technical and non-technical modes of thought, but this task can take two different paths. The first path would consist in preserving aesthetic activity as a model and to attempt to bring about an aesthetics of the human world 
so that the techniques of the human world may encounter the functions of totality of this world, the concern with which is the animating force behind social and political thought. The second path would consist not in taking up techniques or those thoughts that assume the functions of totality in their original state, but rather only after their splitting into a theoretical mode and a practical mode, united in science and ethics. Now, the second path, which takes a longer detour, corresponds indeed to philosophical research according to tradition as well as to the demands of a problematic, but it seems within the current state of notions and methods to lead to an impasse to the point that Kant sought to distinguish the two domains of the theoretical and the practical, assigning an independent status to each of them. Already Descartes had sought to found Fondi, a professional moral code prior to the completion of theoretical knowledge. It can be asked whether the insoluble aspect of this problem of the relation between science and ethics does not rather come from the fact that science and ethics are not true, perfectly coherent and unified syntheses, but a rather unstable compromise between what technical thought contributes and what religious thought contributes, which is to say, between the demands of the knowledge of elements and of that of the functions of totality. In this case, one should rethink at its basis the genesis of the modes of thought in the face shift that opposes techniques and religion prior to the split that within both techniques and religion leads to the emergence of the theoretical mode and the practical mode. Philosophical thought reflecting on techniques and religion could perhaps discover a reflexive technology and an inspiration coming from religion, which would directly and completely coincide with one another, rather than creating an intermediary space of incomplete and precarious relation, such as the one grounded in aesthetic activity. So here we have, for the first time, um, a difference in structure between the the um, genesis in the natural world and the genesis in the um, human world. So um, he he points out two different strategies we could take towards um, finding unity uh, as the task of philosophy, so creating this unification of the different modes of existence. Um, so the one strategy would be um, modeled on uh, aesthetic activity in, in the technical sphere, or sorry, in the natural sphere. Um, so modeled on that aesthetic activity, we would try to produce an aesthetic activity in the human uh, sphere as well. Um, and then the second possible strategy uh, or path, as he describes it, would be to um, take a, a longer detour, as he says, so to um, carry out that split between um, um, the theoretical and the practical mode in each side of that previous split, so the technical and the religious, uh, or the the um, human techniques and the social and political movements would each have to split into theoretical and practical modes, and then you would have a unification of the the two theoretical modes in uh, in a human science, and then a, a unification of the two practical modes in uh, I guess human ethics. Um, um, 
so but then he he argues that um, that the second path or, or the second strategy corresponds to the strategy that philosophy has historically followed but he thinks that it has led into an impasse um, into uh, um, uh, there, there, there's no way to reunify the theoretical and the practical. Um, the, this, this split remains um, uh, irreconcilable. Um, and so he argues instead for the, the first path. Um, so we have to um, re, uh, re-carry out this split in thought rather than um, sort of accepting the historically given uh, splits that are... Um, set out in the history of philosophy. So we have to re-perform the split um, uh, into the technical and religious um, modes of existence within the human sphere. I think he's sounding quite positivist in this, early positivist, like uh, Auguste Comte's uh, technical religious works. It seems, seems very, very similar to kind of what he's getting at here. At least, uh, made not in content, but in uh, motivation, probably. I have to admit that my knowledge of positivism is next to none. So, um, all I know is that there is some sort of grand system of organizing all the different um, um, sciences into a, a sort of a, a structure which um, is supposed to organize society in some way. Oh, right. No, I was just, I actually was looking through his catechism of positive religion or something like that. I forget the exact name, but it's, uh, it's really fascinating. He wanted to like bring, bring all the religions together uh, in their mutual like elimination of one another by their like optimal methods or something. It was extremely, um, extremely like this kind of merging of techniques and religion to kind of the, and, and theory and praxis, just to, to a focal central central positivist positivistic point that um, I think is I don't know I probably don't I'm, I'm not like an expert either so I don't want to say too much but I am biased a little bit from Mill's book on Comte as well so it's he he definitely makes him sound very much like a crazy person in the book but he may very well have been crazy as well. Yeah, I think there's some uh, there's something to um, philosophical ideas that do seem like wild or or out there, and you have to try to see, you know, how how is it that someone could rationally come to hold this position um, and and figure out what the the basis for it is. Um, I think that's a, an interesting um, uh, task in history of philosophy. Um, so uh, yeah. Conte is someone that I, I know very little about, but um, I do know there are some, uh, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, he, he was sort of a, a classic of the French uh, Philosophical Academy. Um, so uh, I'm sure Simon Don would have read at least some of, uh, of Conte's work, and uh, it's possible that he's thinking of something along those lines here. I think, uh, I think that they have... Um kind of uh, I kind of unexpectedly I think um Simon Dunn has be, has is much more positivist sounding in this uh section of the text than 
than I had ever really expected him to be. <laughs> but but I, I really never really expected to, to find myself thinking that there would be some allegiance between the two. But as far as this account um, of, of that kind of um, the ascent, ascent to a philosophy whose, fo- whose kind of focal point is the, the primitive kind of pre, pre-distinction unity between religion and technology um, and, and between theory and practice. I think this, this is really very, um, um, well, I mean, it's, it is almost very, it's, it's an extremely difficult kind of conceptual problem to, to wrap your head around how this could, could completely emerge. But I mean, it, I guess that makes sense as a task of philosophy to, uh, to do this type of systematic reflexive activity. Mm-hmm. But it is very much, I think, very in line also with kind of the, the thinking behind like the early positivist projects that tried to create like massive theories that accounted for all human and natural activity, right? So I think I think that there is there's a certain amount of affinity to that. And and I think in, in French philosophy philosophical tradition, I think you're right in that there is a certain amount of um, positivist systematicity in the tradition. So it would make sense. But yeah, sorry, I, that was a little bit too much of a digression. Would you like to get on with the next paragraph or Uh, maybe before we do that, um, maybe just talk briefly about the last bit of this paragraph. Um, so he he rejects the um, this second strategy or a second path that would um, take this detour through um, through the split into theoretical and practical modes. Um, and so what he's arguing for instead is um, um, so he says in this case. One should rethink at its basis the genesis of the modes of thought in the phase shift that opposes techniques and religion prior to the split that within both techniques and religion leads to the emergence of the theoretical mode and the practical mode. Rethink um, so philosophical thought should um, should re, uh, reproduce the split um, uh, rather than uh, accepting uh, the historical categories of philosophy, such as theoretical and practical thinking. It should... Um, start from before that split and and reproduce the uh, genetic process, um, and this is what he would call a reflexive technology. Uh, and remember, of course, technology for him means the science of techniques or the study of techniques um, rather than techniques itself. Right, so you reproduce the split and then it makes possible for individuation, like in the last paragraph, individuation is the term. Yeah, so I think individuation is what happens once uh, once you reunify that, uh, that split. Um, so uh, the human world is individuated once in the... Um, uh, the split into uh, human techniques and social and political movements is reunified. Then uh, the human world uh, is individuated. It, it consists in, in a, a self-contained individuality. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph if someone else would like to read. Uh, this relation would be at once theoretical and practical, taken prior to the split into the theoretical mode and the practical mode. It would really and completely fulfill the role that aesthetic activity only partially fulfills. 
seeking to integrate techniques and religion, here social and political thought is considered as being of the same order as religion and capable of being treated like it, into a unique world that is both natural and human. For this integration to be possible, technical thought and religious thought would have to be at the level of unity and no longer lower or higher than unity. The structures of plurality and of totality would have to be replaced by a network of analogically connected units. The condition for this discovery is a deepening of the sense of techniques and of the sense of religion that would lead to a reticular structuration of techniques and religion. Techniques and religion can coincide not in the co continuity of their content, but through a certain number of singular points belonging to both areas, and by establishing a third area through their coincidence, which is that of cultural reality. Mm, okay, that's that's this is a good um, explanatory mechanism here, I think, to understand what's been going on. Um, it, I, the way I'm reading this, at least, there seems to be kind of a a a a an account of a re-religiousization re of techniques and a re-technicization of religion. So kind of, it, and this is this is what I'm relating to, like the reticular structuration. Or is that, does that make sense to y'all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, uh, oh, sorry, just a sec. Yeah, the uh, uh, reticular structure is sort of his keyword for the, the magical universe. Uh, the magical universe is the one that's structured like a network of, of key points. Um, so I think he's pointing here to um, that role of philosophy of um, going back to the primitive unity and re-performing the, gen the genetic split. Um, so insofar as philosophy does that, it, uh, it can recreate a, a universe that is structured um, in the form of uh, a network. Yeah, that's, that's another thing I didn't understand, the, um, the network of analogically connected units. Um, yeah, that, that, that is a little bit obscure to me as well. Um, what I would say is that um, uh, analogy is uh, something that he, so he, he connects the concept of analogy with his uh, technical term transduction. So he argues that transductive thought is what is valid in analogical thinking. Um, so um, uh, analogical thinking has to do with um, um, a, relation, a structural relationship between two entities insofar in in uh, yeah insofar as they have a similar structure of uh, the pre-individual and individual within them. Um, so uh, uh, transductive thinking or analogical thinking um, it connects two different entities or two different modes of existence um, insofar as they have the same structure. Um, and uh, so I guess here the idea is that um, if, if philosophical thinking sort of goes back to the, this primitive unity and re-performs the genesis, then it, um, it makes uh, the technical and religious uh, spheres uh, or the technical and religious modes of existence into um, entities with the same structure. Uh, and then there's a, an analogical relationship between them. I think that's sort of what he's getting at here, but I'm not 100% sure. This sounds a bit similar to uh, his discussion of the artwork as uh, as an analog of 
key point and these multiple artworks making a reticular structure akin to a network among themselves. Um, yeah, and that would make sense because aesthetics um, played that role of unification um, at a lower level um, in the same way that philosophy does at a higher level. Um, so uh, it makes sense that we would have the, the same um, recreation of a, a reticular structure or a network structure um, in both uh, modes of existence or of thought. Okay, so let's go on to the next paragraph, if someone else would like to read. Technical thought can be structured by discovery of broader schemas than those of use in a determinate area. The pluralism of techniques effectively results not only from the diversity of technical objects, but also from the human diversity of trades and areas of use. Technical objects with a wide variety of uses can have analogical schemas. The true elementary unity of the technical reality is not the practical object, but the concretized technical individual. It is possible to discover truly pure technical schemas, like those of the different modes of causality, conditioning and command, through a reflection on these concretized technical individuals. I can go on to read the next one too, if you like. Yes, I think so. I think that makes sense. The reflexive effort applied to techniques is characterized by the fact that the techniques of all techniques can develop through the generalization of schemas. Just as the pure sciences are defined, one can imagine founding a pure techniques or a general technology that will be very different from the theoretical sciences whose applications are translated into techniques. It is indeed correct that a discovery in the area of the sciences can enable the birth of new technical devices, dispositives, but it is not directly by deduction that the scientific discovery becomes a technical device. Scientific discovery provides new conditions for technical research, but the effort of invention must nevertheless be exerted for the technical object to appear. In other words, scientific thought must become an operational schema or the base for operational schemas. What one would call a pure technology resides, on the contrary, at the intersection of several sciences and traditional technical areas distributed among several occupations. Thus, the schemas of circular action and their diverse regimes are not the property of any specific techniques. They were first noticed and conceptually defined within, within the techniques related to the transmission of information and automatism, because they play an important practical role within them. But even before this, they had already played a role within techniques such as thermal engine technology, and Maxwell had already studied them theoretically. And yet, every thought whose content covers a plurality of techniques, or at the very least applies to an open plurality of techniques, exceeds for that very reason the technical domain. Certain processes included within the functioning of the nervous system can be thought of through schemas of recurrent causality as well as certain natural phenomena. The schema of relaxation, for instance, is always identical to itself, whether it is applied to a technical apparatus, to the functioning of an intermittent fountain, or to the phenomenon of trembling in Parkinson's disease. A general theory of causalities and of conditionings exceeds the specificity of a domain, even if the conceptual origins of this theory come from a particular techniques. The schemas of a generalized technology therefore rise above the distinct technical object. In particular, they allow for adequately thinking the relation between technical objects and the natural world. 
which is to say they allow for the assurance of the integration of techniques into the world in a way that goes beyond empiricism. The technical object placed into the middle of a body show of actions and reactions whose interplay is predicted and can be calculated is no longer that object separated from the world, resulting from a break within the primitive structuration of the magical world. The figure ground relation broken by technical objectivation is once again found within general technology. Because of this, the technical object is invented according to the media into which it must be integrated and the particular technical schema reflects and integrates the characteristics of the natural world. Technical thought extends itself by incorporating the demands and the mode of being of the media associated with the technical individual. All right, so that's another long uh, couple paragraphs. Um, so we can go through um, in order to, um, to, to try to work out what's going on. Um, so this whole section, this whole paragraph that we read um, has to do with um, what he mentioned in the, in the last paragraph right at the end. So where he said, for this integration to be possible, technical thought and religious thought would have to be at the level of unity and no longer lower or higher than unity. Um, so that um, requirement or that demand on technical thought and religious thought uh, of coinciding with the level of unity is what he's um, uh, sort of working out in the next paragraph that we just read. Um, and so this is what, it, what he means by the deepening of the sense of techniques and of the sense of religion. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so, th so that deepening of the sense of techniques is um, the development of, of this uh, technology, um, this uh, general technology, uh, so uh, a science of of techniques, um, which uh, doesn't coincide with uh, a theoretical science or with a, um, a practical science, but it, it has to do with the schemas of operation of technical objects. Um, uh, so where is that? Um, yeah, so that's that's why it's a, a technics of all technics because it incorporates uh, all the different schemas of action of different um, of different uh, technical spheres, um, regardless of where they fall into the uh, economic division of labor. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff in in this, these two paragraphs. Yeah. Especially, I'm thinking I always am like a fly to the light, but the technics of technics part. Um, it seems like the um, the A of A characterization is going to be applied to different areas of judgment as following from the re reflexivity afforded by philosophical judge judgment or philosophical thinking, right? Yeah, we saw how um, philosophy plays the role of the aesthetics of aesthetics uh, because it carries out a second-order unification in the way that aesthetics carried out a first-order unification. Um, so here, uh, the technics of technics is not philosophy itself, but it's a precondition for philosophy. Um, so it's uh, this reflexive technology um, or general technology or, or pure technics. He, he uses all these terms um, synonymously, I think. Um, um, this would be uh, this deepening of the technical of the the sense of technics um, 
is a precondition for philosophy to be able to unify it with the religious sphere or the social and political movements um, side of the split. Um, so it's, um, yeah, this, I think you're right to say that this A of A structure um, always uh, has to do with um, a reflexive a reflexivity in, in whatever A is. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if there's going to be a, a religion of religions <laughs> or something along those lines. I can't wait to see what he does with that. Yeah, I don't remember either. So um, we'll have to keep our eyes open for that. Um, it's also probably worth mentioning that uh, a lot of the examples that he's drawing on in this paragraph of um, these uh, schemas of operation um, are drawn from cybernetic theory. Um, so especially this, the, the concept of feedback, um, it was a central concept of cybernetics. Um, um, and this example of uh, uh, Parkinson's uh, disease, um, the, the, the trembling in Parkinson's disease, um, it, I think it's from Norbert Wiener, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, and then uh, the example of the thermal engine was a, a sort of a classic example in, uh, in cybernetics. So the, the watt governor um, that, um, that governs the, uh, the output of a, um, a steam engine. Uh, and then Maxwell had, has um, studied the, uh, the mathematical properties of that governor. Um, and that was sort of like a precursor to cybernetics. And, and the cyberneticians uh, pointed to that as a, an example of uh, um, recurrent causality. Um, so yeah, he's drawing on cybernetics here uh, in, this, um, in this section, in, in these last couple paragraphs. Yeah, and I guess if we, if we go back to the encyclopedic spirit stuff from way, way earlier, the, the cybernetic um, era is that in which the, is the era of the technological, which I believe he, he talked about as being the techniques of techniques, right? Yeah, I don't remember if he used the term techniques of techniques, but um, he characterized the cybernetic era as the, um, the era um, where uh, information, where, where um, technical objects operate on information uh, or information is incorporated into the operation of technical objects um, as opposed to uh, like the thermal engine era, um, which uh, uh, did not, where the technical objects did not incorporate information into their functioning. Um, uh, so uh, yeah, the cybernetic era involves this uh, recurrent causality because it uh, incorporates the information into the functioning of the process itself. I think this would be just an aside, but uh, I find it interesting personally. Uh, these kinds of circular schemas uh, borrowed from cybernetics are also used in uh, coming up with speculations about the origins of life uh, in research by people like Stuart Kaufman, I think. Yeah, origin of life stuff is really uh, interesting um, because you have these um, metabolic networks, um, uh, and um, the the question is how these networks become self-sustaining. Um, um, so yeah, there's definitely um, uh, a lot of uh, connections between cybernetic 
principles uh, of, of circular causality or recurrent causality and um, um, origin of life uh, and metabolic network uh, studies and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, far from equilibrium, thermodynamics, uh, all these fields are sort of connected to each other. And we can also probably draw connections with um, Varela and Maturana um, and the concept of autopoiesis um, as being characteristic of life. So living beings are are characterized by the fact that they produce themselves. Um, so they, they sort of borrow a, a cybernetic uh, concept to characterize life as such. Um, and, uh, um, and they use this, uh, uh, yeah, and, and this type of... Um, approach to what it is to be a living being is, uh, I think, used in origin of life studies. I almost see the, um, the technical object placed in the middle of a body of actions and reactions um, part. It kind of reminds me of the sort of thing Merleau-Ponty would be important for, like doing within phenomenology is, is kind of um, Furthering the, the the embodied embodiedness of of phenomenological thinking, and the very very many interesting implications of that, which I'll refrain from going into too much of in detail. But there's a, a sense of like the body context, which I'm sure seeped into him somewhat from Merleau-Ponty. Yeah, actually, I think um, body is not a great translation here of uh, of Fessel. Um, I think a, a better translation would be like a bundle or, uh, yeah, like a bundle of action and reactions. Um, um, oh, okay. I think that makes a better um, uh, better translation. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's, yeah, so it's not a body in the sense of a... Um, uh, like a human body or something like that. It's a, a body in a, like an abstract sense. Uh, like you say, uh, you know, this body um, uh, acts in, in the political sphere or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, so a, a bundle might be a better, um, a better translation, I think. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. It did seem slightly awkward at first. So that, that, that makes more like a constellation of actions and reactions or something. That, make, yeah, that, that makes a lot more sense, I guess. Yeah, um, and then there's a question in the chat from Algman um, um, about uh, engineering and how this fits in uh, uh, with techniques of techniques. Um, uh, so, and was this a, a post-Simondo emergence? Um, so, no, uh, engineering uh, pre-exists, um, you know, like as a, engineering as a profession already existed at the time Simondo was writing. Um, engineering sort of crystallized around the turn of the, the 20th century um, as a separate profession with its own, um, uh, you know, schools and professional bodies and, and accreditation and so on. Um, um, uh, so, it, yeah, it already existed at, at the time Simon Dolan was writing. Um, but, um, yeah, what relation does this general technology or um, um, uh uh, techniques of techniques or reflex technology. What is it? What relation does it have to engineering? Um, I think he would characterize engineering as uh, a practical science. Um, so it always has to do with the bringing about a certain effect, a, a certain desired effect, whether it's you know designing an engine to do something or uh, a bridge or whatever it is. Um, you're trying to bring about a certain effect. 
whereas what he is describing here as a general technics um, studies the schemas of operation in themselves without um, uh, without necessarily um, working to bring about a certain effect. Um, uh, and um, and he, he points out uh, early on in the book that the, uh, um, uh, and then he, he sort of alludes to, the, to this here as well, um, that the uh, determination of technical objects in terms of their, um, their ends of operation uh, doesn't coincide with the, the uh, technical schemas of operation um, so, like, uh, he points out in the introduction, I think, that um, a clock and a crossbow have the same, uh, like a mechanical clock and a crossbow have uh, very similar um, technical uh, schemas of operation, even though their uh, functionality is completely different. Um, and likewise, you could have, um, uh, like, a, a mechanical clock and an electric clock might have the same uh, functionality, uh, uh, like in terms of what their role is or, or what a desired effect is, even though the technical schemas of operation are completely different. Um, so the the general techniques that he's pointing to would uh, would look at those uh, technical schemas of operation um, uh, rather than looking at the desired effect to be brought about as engineering does. Yeah, I remember um, months ago talking, talking about like the sandbox idea about um, about um, methodological uh, ne necessity or possibility, I guess, or open-endedness, I guess, methodological open-endedness. I don't remember precisely what section it was, but I think um, that this was a big theme, especially earlier in the book. And I also think that the distinction between like the, the theoretical and the practical for the engineers, I think um, pro most is probably clearest in the difference in the approach between um, uh, engineers and non-engineers to mathematical questions and how the resolution to the differences in these approaches have kind of gone can kind of give us a clue to the kind of reflexivity of, uh, of of uh, generalized models and and more so Simondon's like metaphilosophical model here. Or I should have said generalized schemas. That would have been more precise. Um, yeah, and then so another question in the chat. Um, how is the theoretical injection into religion not to be a scientific one? For example, ideas of cosmology. Um, I'm not sure I understand that correctly, um, but I think, um, uh, hmm. yeah, I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, maybe if you can elaborate a little bit more. Okay, so uh, uh, while we're waiting for that question, I think we can go on to the uh, uh, next paragraph, um, uh, and then we can maybe come back to the question afterwards. Um, so I can read. Uh, so we're at the bottom of 227. Thus, to the extent that a polytechnic technology replaces the separate technics, the technical realities themselves in their realized objectivity take on a network structure. They are related to one another rather than being self-sufficient like works by artisans, and they are in relation to the world which they bind into the mesh of their key points. Tools are free and abstract, always transportable everywhere where one goes. But technical ensembles are true networks concretely attached to the natural world. 
A dam cannot be built just anywhere, nor can a solar furnace. Some notions of traditional culture appear to suppose that the development of techniques causes the disappearance of the particular aspect of each place and region, leading to the loss of customs and local artisanal inflections. In reality, technical development creates a far more important and much more firmly rooted concretization than the one it destroys. An artisanal custom, like a regional costume, can, by simple influence, be transported from one place to another. It is only rooted in the human world. Conversely, a technical ensemble is profoundly rooted in the natural milieu. There, is, there are no coal mines in primary terrains. So here he's pointing back to the development in the the first section or first part of the book, sorry, um, um, where we saw this uh, hierarchy of the um, the technical elements, the technical individual, and then the technical ensemble. Um, so um, it's insofar as um, uh, so there's a, a coordinate development of um, this general technology or reflexive technology. Um, along with uh, the development of technical networks um, or technical ensembles. Um, so something like uh, a hydroelectric uh, system is integrated into its environments and uh, it has to operate. Um, I mean, you can only build a dam on a river um, with certain properties and so on. Um, so it's uh, rather than being... Um, uh, sort of abstracted from the world in the way that a, a simple tool is or a simple um, um, technical element. Uh, the technical ensemble is integrated into the world. Um, and uh, and yeah, so it, it's, it doesn't have that same um, uh, extractability from its environment that the technical um, element does. Yeah, no, this is a pretty striking um, uh defense of technical judgment from the attack that it is inhibitive or destructive of cultural norms, yeah. I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess the, the objection that um, he's, he's sort of um, deflecting here is um, the idea that uh, technical reality um, um, or technical development uh, destroys cultural norms. So the, the particularities of, um, you know, traditional um, say clothing design for like you know um, each village or each uh, locality would have its own um, traditional clothing design and then technical development and uh, mass production of um, of uh, textiles you know destroys this uh, particularity and I think he says you know that's true or he he, he grants some truth to that um, but then he he argues that the um, the, the process of technical development, um, uh, once it reaches the level of the technical ensemble, um, produces a much more uh, uh, a much more firmly rooted concretization, as he puts it. So it's uh, by integrating technical reality into the natural environment, um, you know, in like the, the hydroelectric system, um, for example, um, it's it makes it, it's much more rooted in reality uh, in the natural world. Um, Whereas these um, pre um, uh, um, pre industrial um, particularities of uh, um, you know the traditional clothing styles or whatever can can be transported from one place to another just by uh, you know the influence or uh, migration or whatever they don't have any intrinsic connection to the natural environment. 
so I think that's the the sort of general structure of his um, his response to that objection. It, uh, I want to believe he wouldn't use the coal mine example if uh, the research on uh, carbon fuels and their effect on climate were available then in 1958. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't, I don't think necessarily we have to assume that technical development is always going to be a positive uh, in all respects for him. Um, so he might still use that example, even knowing uh, about um, global warming uh, and uh, greenhouse effect and so on. Um, uh, but I think, yeah, I think maybe he would have chosen, a, um, like he talks about the solar furnace here, which would, uh, you know, we can use a similar example for, um, um, uh, you know, solar, um, uh, solar panel, um, I'm forgetting the term, but, uh, you know, there are, there are certain places that are more suitable to have mass uh, uh, solar panel um, outlets. Uh, um, obviously, places where you get lots of sunshine uh, um, are more suitable for solar panels than other places. Or, uh, likewise, uh, wind turbines are more effective in one locality where you have constant winds rather than in other places where you have... Um, uh, where you have less uh, constant winds, um, so I think I think it, the the specific example of the coal mine is not too um, important here. It's more um, um, the the idea of a, a technical ensemble um, being integrated into the natural world is what he's pointing to. Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph if someone else would like to read. So it is that some high points of the natural, technical, and human world are constituted. It is the ensemble, the interconnection of these high points that makes this polytechnic, both natural and human, universe. The structures of this reticulation become social and political. In existence, technics are separate neither for the natural world nor for the human world. And yet for technical thought, they remain as if they were separate due to the fact that no thought has been sufficiently developed in order to allow for the theorization of this reticulation of concrete technical ensembles. This theorization is the task that befalls philosophical thought, for there is a new reality here that is not yet represented in culture. Beyond the technical determinations and norms, one would have to discover polytechnic and technological determinations and norms. A world of a plurality of technics exists that has its own structures, and which ought to find representations within the content of culture would be adequate to it. The general term network, commonly employed to designate the interconnected structures of electrical energy, telephones, railways, and roads, is far too imprecise and does not account for the particular regimes of causality and conditioning that exist in these networks, and that functionally attach them to the human world and the natural world as a concrete mediation between these two worlds. I love this, this difference between the part in existence, techniques are separate, neither for the natural world nor for the human world. Um, I guess it, it, I read that techniques are separate neither from the natural world nor from the human world. Um, but uh, then, and yet for technical thought, they, re they remain as if they were separate due to the fact that no thought has been sufficiently developed, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, in terms of just uh, on translation, that, that line, um, 
you could translate it maybe a little bit more literally as um, in existence for the natural world and for the human world, techniques are not separated. Um, yeah, so I don't think I don't think what they wrote here is wrong. It's just maybe a little bit less um, um, close to the original. Um, but um, yeah, so there's this. Uh, um, yeah, the technical world it, or the technical um, existence is uh, both human and natural. Uh, so in the sense that it 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 has to do with human uh, human relation to the world. Um, so it's, it's not neither one nor the other um, in itself, but uh, technical thought um, uh, acts on on the technical world uh, or, or sorry on the technical reality as if uh, it was separate. Mm -hmm. So there's there's that distinction between techniques and what is in existence, uh, in existence techniques techniques in existence I guess I should say, and technical thought are being distinguished there, right? So for technical thought, there's there is a, a bridge that hasn't been uh, gapped because of um, no sufficient recapturing of primary originary magic, so to speak. Right, the, the reticulation again. Yeah, and, and this, um, uh, yeah, so he's, he is distinguishing between uh, techniques as they exist in reality and then technical thought, which is, um, uh, you know, the representation of those, uh, of that technical operation. Um, uh, and so it's only for uh, technical thought that the separation between the human and the natural world um, uh, uh, subsists. And then um, in thought, we have to recapture that unity which already exists in reality. But the, it, it kind of remains that there could be some kind of, you know, development of a thought that at some point, if it were to be sufficiently developed, could allow for the theorization of reticulation of concrete technical ensembles and kind of re-establish re a primitive um, kind of unity, right? This idea, it seems very, very close to an idealist kind of perspective or something like that. I don't know, um, it's verging on it. It's like, we, there hasn't, we haven't yet attained this sort of stage in knowing or something. Yeah, I think this uh, this next stage that he's pointing towards is what he had described earlier as the deepening of the sense of technics, um, where here he describes as um, uh, polytechnic uh, determinations and norms. Um, so it's um, it's something that uh, sorry, where is that? Yeah, so it, it's, it has to do with the way that um, technical objects are integrated into this network and into the natural world um, uh, in, in as these schemas of operation, rather than um, the way that they uh, um, they operate as uh, sort of detachable elements uh, or tools, um, um, or the way that they are integrated into, into the human world uh, through their functioning. Um, neither of those, but rather the the um, the yeah the general integration into the the network of uh, technical ensembles.
It almost makes me think, um, well, we have the social network now, you know, but um, the way that, I mean, I don't think people talked about the social network um, in Simone, Simone Dunn's time, probably, but for us, it's just kind of a natural thing to talk to talk about. Um, of course, you did mention sociometrics earlier, so that would be kind of a, a rough account of that, but the way that he's saying, oh, network is just way too imprecise. Right, it's kind of interesting. Is that what? What is the in the French translation? What is the network? Is that a a, a word that points to network specifically, or like a, does it sound like network? Is it similar to the English term? Uh, so it's not similar to the English term. It's réseau. Um, so, it, but it has the same uh, meaning. Like we talk about réseau social, um, um, as in a, a social network, um, um, and uh, yeah, it, it's um, it's has basically the same meaning as network. Yeah, I think his his objection to the term network is uh, so as he says it's it's too imprecise. So it's not that it's incorrect for to describe all these different. Uh, structures of uh, you know electrical energy, telephones, railways, and roads. It's not it's not incorrect to describe them as networks. It's just that he want he thinks that um, to have a, a proper grasp of the technical reality in each of these um, networks, we need to have a, a an actual representation of the um, system of causality uh, in in each of these networks. Um, so we need a, a concrete technical thought and and. Uh, um, a schema of their operation rather than just pointing to them and, and describing them all as networks. I guess to, to this extent of organization, for this to be feasible, this would imply certain kind of implicit socio-political connotations. I think that, yeah, I think that that's, I mean, this is the way that this diagnosis that he's giving of networks as being imprecise. I think it could, it applies all the more to the way that we think about social networks today in terms of what is the nature of the relationality between particular regimes of people as they're interacting on on media that we call social, right? Like that there's there's all kinds of sort of um, regimes of causality and conditioning that are going on in people's social lives, however much we, we, we understand what he's talking about in terms of physical networks or, or kind of, or more sort of organizational networks. Yeah, I think this is something that um, is becoming more and more um, politically relevant or, or uh, salient, I guess, um, in the sense that um, th these uh, social media companies have uh, tried to portray themselves as just sort of neutral intermediaries, um, but um, it's become, I think, harder and harder for them to do that as people are more aware of the ways that um, that they, they have this uh, actually a very strong mediating role in terms of what what posts get promoted and uh, who sees what and and how people interact with each other, um, what types of posts are, are incentivized um, and de-incentivized and so on. Um, so there's all these different um, uh, properties of the, the network that, um, uh, that uh, uh, have this sort of internal conditioning or causality. Um, so they, the, the um, the network brings about certain types of behavior of uh, its elements, namely us, um, 
it, it makes us behave in certain ways. Uh, and this is something that I think has become a lot more, um, has entered into the popular consciousness a lot more in the past, like two or three years, um, as opposed to before. And also that we sort of tell ourselves a story about the, we tell ourselves a story about the relays between technics and religion in the ways that Simon was talking about it too here, um, the way that we sort of connect um, theory and practice, the way that we connect sort of means and ends and how we operationalize social behavior and then tell a sort of integrative story about it that, you know, it puts me in mind of someone like uh, Habermas, for instance, talking about communicative rationality as a way of sort of giving us sort of secularized uh, quasi-religious view of what what the integrative operations of, 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 a, of a media technology like social media would accomplish and providing an ethics for it as well. All right, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph. Um, that might be, uh, we have a little bit of time, so maybe we'll read a couple more paragraphs. Um, but if someone else would like to read from the introduction of adequate representations. I'll read the introduction of adequate representations. The introduction of adequate representations of technical objects into culture would result in the key points of technical networks becoming real terms of reference for the ensemble of human groups, whereas they currently are only key terms for those who understand them, which is to say for the technicians of each specialty. For other men, they only have a practical value and correspond to very confused concepts. Technical ensembles introduce themselves into the world as if they had no natural or human right of belonging, while a mountain or promontory, which has less concrete regulatory power than some technical ensembles, are known by all men of a region and belong to the representation of the world. Uh, maybe you can go on to the next paragraph, too, because it's a fairly short one. And yet, one can wonder to what extent the creation of a general technology brings technics closer to religion. The recognition of the genuine, complex operational schemas and of the integration of technical ensembles would not be enough to enable this uh, rapprochement if there weren't, along with the theoretical awareness of processes, also a normative value contained in them. Indeed, the reticular structures of integrated techniques are no longer mere means available for an action and abstractly transportable anywhere, utilizable at any moment. One changes tools and instruments. One can construct or repair a tool oneself, but one cannot change the network. One doesn't construct a network of one's own. One can only connect to a network, adapt to it, participate in it. The network dominates and frames the action of the individual. It even dominates each technical ensemble. Whence a form of participation in the natural world and in the human world that gives an incorruptible collective normativity to technical activity. It is no longer only a slightly abstract solidarity of traits as evoked by Soli Prudhomme, the solidarity of specialists, the bricklayer, the baker, but an extremely concrete and actual solidarity existing instant by instant throughout the interplay of multiple conditionings through the technical networks, the human world acquires a high degree of internal uh, resonance. The powers, forces, and potentials that drive toward action 
exist in the reticular technical world in the same way in which they might have existed in the primitive magical universe. Technicity is a part of the world. It is not only an ensemble of means, but an ensemble of conditionings of action and of incitements to act. The tool or instrument doesn't have normative power because it is permanently available to the individual. Technical networks take on more normative power as the internal resonance of human activity throughout technical realities becomes greater. Right, so he, he points to the fact that um, uh, within culture as it currently exists, um, the um, these adequate representations of technical objects are are only um, held by these technicians in each uh, sphere of technology, uh, or sorry, each sphere of uh, the technical reality. Um, whereas um, natural um, key points like a mountain um, are are well known to everyone, um, these technical key points are are much less known. Um, and uh, there are only you know, only a few technicians uh, have a, a, a real grasp of uh, the technical network um, and the key points of that network. And there's interesting, um, there, there's a certain kind of uh, resonance, a function of resonance um, in the kind of technical realities that is is important here the that he he emphasizes it twice this resonance idea and it's very compelling actually this i guess the um the overlapping of of primitive key points i guess or the overlapping of the reintegration of primitive key points how would you describe that Yeah, this uh, this concept of internal resonance um, is something that was brought up way back in the first part of the book um, uh, when he's talking about concretization. Um, so, as a, a, in a, a, the development of a technical lineage, as a, a technical object becomes more and more concrete, it um, its various um, technical uh, functions are, are integrated uh, more and more closely together. So rather than um, rather than a technical object just consisting in a, a sort of um, sequence of separate functions or, or a geometrical um, uh, um, like parallelism of different functions, um, you have all these different functions operating together at the same time. Um, and, uh, and he describes that, that state of of uh, high concretization or this um, plurality of functions, um, he describes that as internal resonance. Um, so he, he's borrowing that term from from the development of technical objects um, in that first part of the book, and he's re reintroducing it here for, um, for human. the human world. Um, so um, he says uh, through uh, technical networks, the human world acquires a, a high degree of internal resonance. Um, so it's insofar as, um, uh, so when the human world is, um, uh, operates using, uh, independent tools or technical elements, then each of those tools is, uh, sort of a self-contained, 
uh, operation, it can be repaired or, or produced by an individual. Um, but then once the human world uh, operates in technical networks, uh, that network is greater than any individual. And um, uh, it's um, all, all of the different functionings of individuals within that network uh, coincide with each other. So yeah. the human world acquires this property of uh, internal resonance uh, in a similar way that the technical object does. And then um, he, he points right at the beginning of this of that paragraph and right at the end um, to the, the normative character of, um, of this technical network. Um, so it's insofar as the technical network is something that surpasses any individual um, uh, um, that it's it, um, imposes on us uh, certain norms of action um, um, and maybe imposes is the wrong word because it's not it's not uh, something external to us um, it's something that we constitute through our action yeah, right. but at the same time it's uh, the network um, uh, uh, incites towards certain types of action and then uh, uh, would de-incentivize other types of action um, like, or, or make possible certain types of action and make other kinds of action impossible and so on uh, so it, it's uh, in that sense that it has a, a normative character and it's it's through that normative character that it um that uh the technical thought will um be able to be united with religion it seems like um a kind of cybernetic account of activism that's kind of how i'm reading it at least at least that's in part of part of this paragraph uh, I'm not sure activism is the right word, um, but um, so we are going to see um, as we proceed here the way that this connects with um, social and political movements, uh, which is you know what is playing the role of religion in the human world. Um, uh, so it's um, um, how to put it. Uh, so insofar as um, as there is human action uh, that takes the human world as its object, um, I think we can maybe describe that as activism in a broader sense. Um, so it's uh, it human action that, that aims at bringing about a certain uh, um, form of the human world as a whole, um, that we could describe that as activism. Uh, I'm not sure if that was sort of the, the idea that you were pointing towards or not. Well, I was thinking about um, particularly the, on, the ensemble of conditionings of action and of incitements to act. Um, it reminded me of the kind of discourse surrounding activism and socio sociopolitical movements. So it makes sense that he would he would kind of parlay into that from this from what he's doing here. It's at least a foreshadowing to that. Yeah. So. Um... Yeah, that's this is the sort of um, where the transition from uh, the technical sphere to the religious sphere or the the social and political sphere um, is going to is going to happen is through this normativity of the network. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's where um, uh, I guess activism in that sense would uh, would enter enter into the the, the process. So not not just activism in in a very kind of historical historicized account of like certain important 
figures and, you know, the kind of heroism of activism, but the kind of ordinary sense of activism, I guess, does that make sense? That would be kind of implicit here. I can, I can kind of see, I can kind of see that the account making sense in that way. Um, not just kind of like a special category of something that, which is peculiarly activist or entails like a certain agenda or something the way that it's used often deliberately in a negative sense, but related more to a kind of animistic um, action from kind of groupthink, sort of, in a, in a way. Hmm. I don't know. Um, and possibly the, the networks could be kind of related to these resonant, resonance-induced kind of um, uh, dominating factors, which have kind of command functions in, in over our... Um, over our motives and uh, what in incitements and conditioning. So, um, yeah, but I, I was thinking more so on the side of the incitements to act, to act rather than the conditionings of the act, action. But um, I don't know. It, I, I'll, it'll be interesting to see how this works out. I don't know what I can say more about it from just this paragraph. So. Yeah, um, I think um, we're running out of time, but maybe we can read one more paragraph, which I think will point towards the um, um, how the how this um, network, the normativity of the network, points towards the uh, the role of social and political movements. Um, so I can read the next paragraph. Uh, right. However, the valorization of technical ensembles and their normative value entail a very particular form of respect, which has in view pure technicity in itself. It is this form of respect founded on the knowledge of technical reality and not on the prestige of the imagination, which can penetrate culture. A large highway at the edge of a big city imposes this form of respect. Moreover, a harbor, the rail traffic signal regulation center, or the control tower of an aerodrome impose this same form of respect. The key points of a network possess this power insofar as they are key points, and not because of the, the direct prestige of the technical object they contain. So it was that the clock of the Paris Observatory about 10 years ago was slightly disrupted by the tumultuous visit of science students passing by it on their way to the, the catacombs. The, the uproar caused by this violation of the technical sacred was at that moment rather considerable. Now with that same clock, had been placed in a teaching laboratory and it had been intentionally set wrong in order to show the interplay of the self-regulation of its functioning, then no emotion corresponding to the violation of the sacred would have been felt. Hmm. It is in fact because of the observatory's clock is the key point of a network that you miss the time signals by radio that its disturbance is scandalous. It is not because of the practical danger that this disturbance would have represented because it is too small to be severe enough to lead to important errors by ships on sea. Oh, wow. hmm. Here we bear witness to a profanation, properly speaking, independent of the practical consequences it could entail. It is the stability of a system of references that is compromised. It is likely, by the way, uh, to, that to have attempted such a profanation would not have occurred to humanity's students, since for them the observatory's clock doesn't have the same normative value. It is not sacred because it is not known according to its technical essence and is not represented by adequate concepts in their culture. These forms of respect and of disrespect manifest within the technicity that is integrated into the natural and human world the inheritance of values surpassing utility. Thought that recognizes the nature of the technical reality is that which, going beyond separate objects, utensils, according to Heidegger's expression, discovers the essence and reach of technical organization 
beyond separate objects and specialized occupations. This is a great example for me to better understand what he means by norms. Yeah, I think norms here, so they, they are not um, norms in the sense of uh, moral values or something like that, but um, um, things that, uh, I guess, um, structures of, of behavior or orientations of behavior. So in the same way that the this clock in the observatory um, uh, structures the, the network by sending out radio signals of, of, uh, of the time um, that other... Uh, that ships, for example, use in, in orientation and so on. Um, uh, so other technical networks have their own um, orienting properties um, that that human behavior um, or technical behavior is is oriented towards. And it's a really weird example. Have to um, do you know? Do you know what the the, um, the issue with the observatory's clock was in the controversy, et cetera? No, I don't know what the incident he's referring to here um, is, but it, it just sounds like, um, like I know certain clocks are very sensitive to um, disruption, like uh, through vibrations or, or whatever. Um, so it sounds like the students um, did something to deliberately uh, um, destabilize the clock so that it, it um, lost, you know, a few fractions of a second or, or gained uh, a certain amount of time and... Uh, and then this apparently, you know, set off a, a reaction uh, in the technical world because of the, um, you know, attack on this sacred object. Yeah, no, the, it's, this is a very strange paragraph. I'm going to have to think about this um, over the next week at some point, and it's going to be kind of on my mind. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very strange. The example is strange, and what he's, the point he's trying to make, I think, is also subtle, subtle in very, very interesting ways, so... Especially when he when he talks about what why this would not have occurred to humanity students because of the normative values. Um, this is this is a strange statement. I'm gonna have to think about the whole kind of like the the socio political implications of everything going on here in this paragraph. I don't see that. I think the reason for him why it would not occur to humanity students is simply that humanity students. Um, behavior is not oriented towards this technical network, um, um, whereas um, science students um, or engineering students or whatever, I don't think it says exactly which one it is. Oh, it says science students, yeah. Um, they, they understand or, or they have some relation with this technical network, whereas humanities students would not have... Uh, um, that same relation with that network. And so they would just never, it, it doesn't have that value of uh, something sacred to them. Yeah, I'm still curious about, um, like, so So the, the normative value which was at play for the non-humanity students, kind of how did the embedded um, normative values that for the humanities students wouldn't have made sense. Um, so in, in some sense, the analogy makes sense but then um, it makes me wonder like what he's saying kind of in that sense of that 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 controversy over the the difference between the natural and human sciences for instance like it, it's almost like there's a there's almost I want to figure out if there's like a next level kind of uh, take going on here rather than just an explanation of what he's saying directly a kind of throwback to 
a implicit argument kind of against um, a similarity of thinking between the humanities students and the the non-humanity students. I guess he is designating polytechnics uh, specifically. So I'm gonna have to think about it and figure out figure out exactly what's going on still. Overdo it. Yeah, I think I see what you're getting at with the um, the relationship between the humanities and um, the the uh, natural sciences uh, and what difference there is between them. Um, but I think, so I think one aspect of that difference that he's pointing to here is that um, um, these technical networks um, remain only, uh, they're, they're only represented for um, a few technicians, as he said in a, a previous paragraph, um, whereas the humanities students or, or, you know, humanistic thought in general doesn't have a, a concrete representation of the, the technical networks in which we live. Um, and uh, yeah, so there, there's a, a certain gap between the two, um, which for him needs uh, the culture um, has to fill that role. Um, so philosophy has to bring about that new form of culture, which would um, integrate the two. You know, I, I do wonder if, if, if Simone Den would... Uh think that humanities students for some inherent reason would be um, find find the, the the networks of generalized schematisms kind of inaccessible, right? This is kind of in the back of my mind. <laughs> but you know, actually I now that I think about it, this might be something that he'll talk about in as the book comes to an end here. It might address that that very idea. So I have my fingers crossed. Yeah, um, I, I think we'll have to see how it develops as we uh, keep going. Um, um, and Burke has just posted a, a link, or sorry, a, a quote from earlier in the book about uh, cultural education and the way that it um, um, it doesn't integrate um, the didactic um, uh, didactic works uh, unless they're from the the ancient. Um, so the way that culture is sort of uh, anachronistic, it, it only incorporates um, uh, outdated uh, technical works and doesn't um, doesn't match the existing technical reality of today. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that that's would be a shot at the humanities, right? That's a shot. That's a shot. Yes, yeah, he is critical of uh, of the humanities, um, but I, I think it's it's critical in the sense that they aren't living up to what they should be, uh, in his view. Um, ah, okay. Well, so that's that's a positive note. So there's an open endedness. So it could be that the humanities could come into kind of philosophical unity with the um, with the, um, the the cyberneticists, I guess, right? <laughs> Yeah, I think I think he's not he's not saying that humanities are, are something that should be um, rejected or, or or something like that. He's he's saying that um, they are not fulfilling the role that they they should fulfill um, by uh, integrating um, these different these uh, you know technical schemas of operation into culture, um, and and so he sees the task of philosophy as as you know bringing about that integration, um, uh, which has not been achieved so far. Huh. Well, this sounds like a great place to, to call it quits until next time. What do y'all think?
Yeah, we're just at about two hours, maybe actually a little beyond two hours. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good place to stop. I'm going to do some, uh, I, I have access to my um, video editing system again, so I'm going to start doing um, more uh, stuff probably later today. I'm going to fill out a few old episodes, so that should be progressing a little bit more, more uh, uh, quickly than it has been. Cool. Sounds good. Um, yeah, so thank you, everyone, for joining. We had a few uh, new, or not necessarily new, but people that haven't been here for a little while. So uh, it's nice to see some some familiar faces or avatars, at least. Um, um, and so I'll see you all next week.